Communication uh, is important, isn't it? Uh, Making sure the right message gets across, that we're clear with what we're saying. Because whenever uh, some sort of miscommunication uh, happens, some sort of uh, crossing of the wires, the results can be somewhat unexpected. And let me give you uh, an example with the case of a guy by the name of Guy Goma. I'm not sure if you've met Guy Goma or heard of him. Uh, He came to international fame last year uh, in May uh, when he'd gone to the BBC studios for an interview, uh, but not an interview on television. He'd gone there for a job and uh, all of a sudden he found himself in an altogether different interview. This is how the story went uh, on News 24 last May. Goma was waiting in the main reception area of the BBC television centre in West London and he was waiting to be interviewed for the position of data support cleanser in the corporation's IT department. At the same time, another man, Guy Cuny, a British technology expert, was in another reception area known as the stage door and he was preparing for a live television interview on the subject of Apple Computer's court case uh, against Apple Corporation. Now, the producer uh, went to fetch Guy Cuny. However, he was told that Cuny was in the main reception area. And so he headed off to get Guy Cuny. And uh, when he asked the receptionist there whether Guy Cuny was there, she pointed to Guy Goma. Now, the producer approached Goma and asked him if he was, in fact, Guy Cuny. Now, hearing his first name and perhaps believing that Cuny was some sort of mispronunciation of his second name, Goma answered in the affirmative. Yes, that's me, he said. And so Goma was then led uh, to the News 24 studio where staffers put makeup on him, ushered him into the television studio where he was seated in front of cameras and wired up with a microphone, all the while believing uh, that this situation was somewhat unusual but uh, prepared to go along with it and do his best for what he believed was his job interview. And so when he was introduced by interviewer Karen Bowerman as internet expert, Guy Cuny, Goma became visibly shocked. (laughs) Goma's face uh, went through four distinct expressions in under five seconds from uh, shocked realisation to blind terror to crafty resolve and then he put on his best Guy Cuny face. As he realised there'd been some sort of misunderstanding but by now the interview was well underway and not wishing to make a scene, uh, he did his best to play along. Uh, In a heavily uh, French-accented English, he tried to answer the interviewer's questions about the Apple versus Apple case and all the intricacies that it involved and the ramifications for the wider music industry. Now, you can actually watch this interview uh, on the internet if you'd like to do that. I think Guy Goma does an incredible job of answering the questions, probably better than most experts would do. But just the sheer look in his face as the penny drops where he is. Miscommunication matters and sometimes the effects are serious and no more so than when we see a miscommunication or a communication breakdown between ourselves and God. What happens when God stops speaking? Not merely just a crossing of the wires but he is simply silent. Well, in the 8th century BC, the prophet Amos gives us a vivid picture of what it would be like if God stopped speaking to his people. Amos says, The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, 
but a famine of hearing God's word. Men will stagger from sea to sea and they will wander from the north to the east searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. For Amos to not hear God's word would be like a disastrous famine, but not of food or of a thirst for drink. Even worse, God would be silent. And such a famine, Amos says, can only lead to disaster. But to be honest, for us, as as we hear these words from Amos and we hear this promise that a famine of God's word would lead to disaster, it's hard not to think it's all a bit far-fetched. I mean, we can see how a famine of food or a thirst for water is very, very serious. We see it on our news all the time and our hearts go out to those in the grip of it and we feel powerless to change things. But a famine of God's word? That God be silent towards us? Inconvenient, maybe. Perhaps an awkward silence, but disastrous? The problem with thinking this way, of course, is that we fail to see the immense goodness of God's word to us and we fail to remember how profoundly and utterly dependent we are on that word and every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, food and drink, yes, we need them for our existence, but to live above existence level living, well, that's where God's word is essential And as we pick up this story of one Samuel that we've been in now for a few weeks, we come to a period of Israel's history not unlike the one Amos spoke of. It's worth turning to 1 Samuel chapter 3 where we pick up the story today. It's page uh, 274, 1 Samuel 3. And in the very first verse of chapter 3, we are told that in those days the word of the Lord was rare. In previous verses uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, God had indeed spoken. We saw it last week. But in those days, such an event was very rare. It was not that he couldn't speak, it was that he chose not to. God had shut his mouth. Now, if you were here last week, you would have seen the reasons for the scarcity of God's word. The priests at Shiloh, the ones responsible for receiving that word, Eli's sons, We're told in chapter 2, verse 12, did not know the Lord. They showed complete contempt for God, for his ways and for his people. These priests who were meant to receive God's word and then hand it to the people don't even know God. Chapter 2, verse 12 literally says they were sons of Belial, worthless, imposters, The Australian phrase uh, that came to my mind as I was reading that verse was they were all the gear but no idea, dressed up like priests, looking like priests but no idea how to do their job. I was thinking about that this week and I remembered back a few weeks ago when Australia was actually still in the Rugby World Cup and uh, we were playing Wales uh, and uh, after the game it was a great victory and uh, the the team's doing this lap of honour And there on the side of the field is this guy who's not part of the team at all and he's dressed up in the full wallaby gear, even the little padded helmet, he's got it all and he convinces the security guard that he is in fact part of the team and he should be led on the field. And so for the next five minutes he proceeds to run around with the team giving high fives to anyone who will give it to him and signing autographs until somebody realises that this guy was an imposter. Well, that's the sort of priest that they had in Shiloh. 
looked like a priest, but did not know the Lord. And so when it came to him receiving God's word, he was utterly useless. And so God had stopped speaking. What was the point? And I think even in these first words of this chapter, we have a helpful challenge for ourselves. One worth pausing over. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. We too can suffer from a scarcity of God's word. And at first we might think, well, that's actually impossible for us now. We have God's complete word, the scriptures, the Bible. We're never going to run out. But it's just as easy for us to find a way to gag God's voice. We can very easily find ourselves in a famine of God's word because we have a problem at the receiving end. An example of that is the whole concept of selective hearing. I don't know about you, but uh, my children are brilliant at selective hearing. I can say all sorts of things to them very clearly uh, and quite loudly sometimes and it doesn't seem to get through. Finn, can you tidy up the toys? Finn, stop hitting your sister. Finn, it's time to go to bed. Don't play with the electric drill, please. All sorts of things and it's like I'm speaking a different language. Nothing is getting through. But then all of a sudden I say something along the lines of, Finn, would you like some chocolate? Finn, would you like some ice cream? And all of a sudden, now you're speaking my language, Dad. Now we're communicating. I understand. We do the same thing sometimes with God's word, don't we? We can can get to the point where we read it, but we never hear, at least for ourselves, a a challenge of any sort, a, a, a call to mission or a call to service, a call to change, even a rebuke of some sort. Yeah, we might hear it, but it's, it's not our call. Well, the exact opposite. I remember meeting a lady at the church I was a part of in Sydney who, no matter how many times she read the Bible on her own or in a, in a small group or even at church, never seemed to hear a word of grace. Always left feeling that she had to impress God, perform, for him to be pleased with her. You know, you can listen to a sermon, you can, you can read the Bible for yourself and you can miss anything that gives you assurance before God. Selective hearing. That's what a famine of God's word, his full, real word looks like. But there can also be a problem, can't there, at the transmission end of things, when we're responsible for passing that word on to someone else. And think of our own families. Let me ask you, Does the word of God flourish in your house? Is it in plentiful supply? Imagine verse 1 being written this way. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare in the Reese household. Earlier at the 9.15 service, we had the baptism of Thomas Kilgore. Now, I've had the privilege of meeting uh, his parents a number of times, Chris and Anna, and I know they love the Lord. And I know they love his word. You know, and I rejoice in the fact that theirs will be a home where God's word does flourish. They've promised to raise Thomas to know God's goodness, to know his kindness, and they know there's no other way to do that than through his word. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I'm part of a baptism or see a baptism, it reminds me of my job as a Christian parent. I have to make sure God's word is in plentiful supply in my house. And I'm not talking about Bibles 
conveniently located all around the house so that they can be grabbed at any point. You know, Bibles collect dust as well as any other book. Better, they're thicker than most. I'm talking about being someone who opens and explores the word of God with my son and daughter. Showing them that there is no treasure in our house more valuable than this one. Nothing more valuable in life than hearing and receiving this word. Whether it be over Sunday lunch or or breakfast or in the car or walking, wherever it is, to be someone who plentifully supplies that word to my family. You know, our challenge as, as families and as a whole church family is not to become binge eaters with God's word. Where we, where we come on a Sunday morning and we get our fix and we go away full, hoping that it will tide us over until the next week. That's what a famine looks like. And so back to our scene in 1 Samuel 3, we've got this bleak picture of a famine of God's word and yet in the midst of it, again, our attention is shifted to Samuel. As we saw last week, the story of Samuel is the complete opposite to the story of Eli's house. He's thriving in the Lord. And so as as this story of chapter 3 begins, our our attention is hedged between two very different pictures. The picture of Samuel, who chapter 221 tells us is growing up in the Lord, and the picture of Eli, who are in this famine. And with our attention on those two, a night, an amazing night begins in verse 2. It begins pretty typically, um, but we as the audience are brought right into the scene as if we were there by detailed physical descriptions of both Eli and Samuel. First of all, in verse 2 we're told about Eli and the narrator sort of highlights his declining physical state. We were told in verse 1 that there were not many visions in those days, the way God revealed his word. Now we're told Eli, who would receive those visions, has eyes so weak that he can barely see. Not only that, Eli, we're told, is lying down. He will not get up throughout the night. The picture here is of a man who is fading fast, who is not able to do very much anymore. We're also told he's in his usual place, which in and of itself doesn't really matter, but when you see in verse 3 where Samuel is, a big point is being made. Israel has a problem. Their spiritual leadership is in crisis. They need a mediator to receive God's word, a word that's all too rare anyway, but Israel's mediator is lying down, almost blind, and his dodgy sons are next in line. And then our attention shifts to Samuel, verse 3. And again, it's the physical descriptions that uh, the narrator uses to make the point. Nothing, I don't think, is accidental here. Firstly, we're told where Samuel is, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. The lamp that burnt from evening to morning to signify the night was still alight. So in one sense it's just telling us that these events are happening at night time. But I suspect the narrator is using this physical detail to tell us that God's lamp had not gone out, nor had his hope. The darkness of Eli's son's behaviour and the blindness of Eli himself had not shut out hope. That hope takes the shape of Samuel, who we're told is also lying down. But the big difference, do you see where he's lying? In the very temple of the Lord, the very place where God dwelt with his people, the place if he was going to speak, 
in these days of famine. This is where he'd do it. And Samuel's there. And so what is very scarce happens that night. Have a look at verse 4. God speaks. Now Samuel's reaction is, is not surprising. The word of the Lord is rare. It's the middle of the night. He hears this call of his name and he immediately assumes that Eli is calling him and so he races off to Eli's bed and says, you called me? Eli sort of woken out of his slumber says, what are you talking about? Go back to bed. It's the middle of the night. Samuel goes back, I imagine, scratching his head, wondering what the old man is up to. And then it happens again. Verse 6, charges off to Eli. You must have called me this time. I'm not hearing things. No, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And again, verse 8, standing beside Eli's bed, both of them a bit confused about what's happening. Can you picture the scene? Then in verse 7, we're given the explanation of why Samuel is unaware that God is speaking to him. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Strange explanation, isn't it? Given what we've seen of Samuel in chapter 2, the progress he is making in the Lord, and even stranger when you look back to chapter 2 verse 12 and you see the almost exact same phrase used of Eli's sons, they did not know the Lord. And yet there's one big difference. In Samuel's case the statement is qualified by the word yet. In 2.12 and 3 verse 7 we have two very different reasons for the same situation. Eli's sons in, in 2.12, Hophni and Phinehas, didn't know the Lord because they'd rejected him, showed complete contempt for him and for his ways. You see, what Hophni and Phinehas show us here is it's, possible, it's not possible to know the Lord and yet totally reject his ways, to live a life which shows that you don't know him. You know, 1 John 2.4 says the same thing. It says of the one who says, I know God, and yet has no regard for his commands, is a liar. That's the picture here. But chapter 3 verse 7 gives us a very different picture and reminds us that knowing God is unlike knowing anything else. You know, most things that we, we know we can learn through discovery. You know, useless facts. I, I know Don Bradman's batting average down at the second decimal point, 99.94. There's an interesting fact for you to have if you didn't know that. You can learn all sorts of things, useful skills, how to drive a car, how to do your job. With, with enough time and access and the right information, you can know pretty much anything. It's a sort of phone-a-friend theory of life. But it doesn't work that way with knowing God. Samuel 3 verse 7 shows us that it's only possible to know God when he acts to make himself known. Relationship with God, knowledge of God is only brought about when he reveals himself. And so if you're here today and for you when it comes to God and the Christian message, you say, I, I don't believe that or I'm yet to be convinced, then what, what's missing for you is not information. The problem is captured perfectly for us in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Blinded eyes to the wonder of who Jesus is. If you're not a believer, that's what you can't see. You can't see Jesus as magnificent. 
as so glorious that he puts all the power, all the money, all the applause, all the toys, all the relationships, all the sex, all of it in his shadow. But when God reveals himself to you through his word, it's like having the blinds of your house ripped up and you see Jesus for who he is. It's a bit like if if you fly between Australia and the the United Kingdom, you're flying over some of the most spectacular scenes that you'll ever see, amazing mountains and, and rivers and huge cities that you'll never see from that perspective ever again. And virtually the whole time you're flying, they've got the blind down because it's snooze time. And you think, I want to see all this. I want to see what's out there. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says that when God reveals himself, it's like he's pulled up the blind and he said, snooze time is over. And he does that by speaking. That's what he's doing with Samuel in chapter 3. And he's doing it patiently, isn't he? Three times he calls him and no answer. And then finally in verse 8, as Samuel ends up at Eli's side for a third time, Eli at last sees what's going on. Something all too rare is actually happening. God is speaking. And so the old man Eli tells him what to do and we're not kept waiting long by verse 10 we're told that this time the Lord came and stood beside Samuel and called him and Samuel said speak your servant is listening but what God says on this occasion we're told in verse 11 is so terrible that the ears of anyone who hears it will tingle and when I first heard that idea I thought tingling ears that kind of sounds kind of pleasant your ears tingle. But the picture here is it's a bit like having your hair stand on end when something completely frightening is before you. The word God speaks is a terrible word. Something that will cause all of Israel's hairs to stand on end. What's God going to do? He's being true to his word. On one of the rare occasions that he'd spoken previously in chapter 2, he'd come to Eli's house with a question and a promise. You remember it last week? We saw this incredible gift that he'd given the sons of Eli, that they'd, had, God had revealed himself to them, that he'd chosen them to be priests over his people and he'd given them everything they needed and they'd responded with contempt and dishonour, scorned God's sacrifice, honoured their house over God. And so God had promised judgment and now he delivers it. It's a hard message. You know, we hear this word of judgment in uh, these verses, verses 13 and 14, and and we we see it as a terrible thing to contemplate and it's hard for us, isn't it? Embroiled in the midst of uh, a sinful humanity and very much a part of that ourselves to see clearly the rightness of God's ways here. It's very important, I think, to take care and humbly listen to the word of God without passing judgment on it, to allow it to illuminate our minds. Let me suggest three ways I think verses 13 and 14 do that for us. Firstly, already all throughout the chapters we've seen so far of Samuel, we have seen that God's judgment can be trusted far more than ours. In chapter 2 we are told that he is a God who knows everything. A God whose deeds are weighed before. And so given this, I think there's a certain arrogant absurdity, isn't there, in responding to this passage as if we knew more about Eli's sons or had a clearer sense of justice in this case than the Lord does. Our God knows. 
The Bible shows us that we can trust God to do right. And secondly, it's important to remember that this word of judgment is also a word of rescue. He said he'd guard the feet of his saints. And if you see the picture of his saints in uh, the early part of chapter 2 trying to come to the temple to offer their sacrifices and being knocked out of the way by the priest, God knows. And he is acting to rescue his people. And finally, and I think perhaps most importantly, and we saw this in detail last week, remember that God will not allow his grace to be mocked. As we see in verse 14, God's ways are just. But there's more to see here, I think, in these final verses and the rightness of God's judgment. As the chapter ends, uh, we we come to a, a state of affairs, I think, that is very different to the one we saw at the start. A change that reminds us that judgment is never God's final word to his people. Have a look at verse 19. God is speaking again through his servant Samuel, a servant whose words, we are told, will never fall to the ground, words that will never fail. And why? Because they're God's words and none of his words ever fail to achieve their purpose The God who had looked with compassion on a childless Hannah now looks with compassion on his people and his response, he speaks to them. God is no longer silent. Well, let's conclude uh, by drawing out, I think, two big implications that we see uh, from this scene in chapter 3. The first is I think it's hard to avoid the fact that the God that we see speaking in this chapter is a God who speaks purposefully. Now God's not big on small talk, is he? He's the guy at the dinner party who cuts straight to the chase. There's no wasted words with him, no sort of padding around the main point. Not one of his words fall to the ground. Not one of them fails to achieve its purpose. And nowhere do we see that more clearly than in his living word, Christ Jesus, God's ultimate and clearest word to his world. You see, with Jesus, nothing is small or wasted. Everything is of massive importance. The word of Christ is a word of great urgency, isn't it? Great purpose. The word of Jesus' sacrificial death, of, of his judgment of any who would not turn and trust him, are the loudest shouts conceivable under heaven that God is infinitely holy, that sin is infinitely offensive to God, that his anger is infinitely just, but that his grace is infinitely precious. It's a word that tells us that this brief life that we have and everyone else has will very quickly usher into either everlasting joy or everlasting pain. There is no more purposeful word than that, is there? That is the word God speaks to us through his Son. But secondly, and this is very important to see from 1 Samuel 3, The God who speaks that word speaks it very patiently. The God revealed in 1 Samuel 3 is a kind and gentle, patient God. As he speaks to Samuel, he's on the verge of doing something huge, ending the priesthood of Eli's house, rescuing his people, establishing a prophet so his word will be heard. Big, big things, vital things. But he seems in no hurry. He keeps calling Samuel once, twice, three times. There's no three strikes and you're out policy here. 
You know, the picture of the Lord uh, in this chapter is not of an exasperated, overbearing God. Why won't you listen? No, he knows some matters take time, despite how important they are. Patience is required. And the God we meet here is the way he continues to be with us. He speaks clearly, purposefully, but very, very patiently. And I think for a Christian that's great comfort, isn't it? To know that the God uh, who speaks to us through his word speaks to us of things that matter, things of great purpose, but he does it with amazing patience. Every time he speaks to us, as, as he speaks even now, he pushes us on to know him more, to, to love him more, to, to become more like his wonderful son. Every time we open the scriptures, he's doing that. Going to work with great purpose and patience and not one word he speaks to us will fall to the ground. Even though he knows he may need to speak some words to us many, many, many times. You ever had that feeling with God that he keeps having to say the same thing? Whether it be a, a word of comfort or a rebuke or words about his sovereignty so that you will trust him? Our God speaks patiently of such things. He knows our condition. He knows it better than we do and so he meets us there and he will continue to speak if you trust him. And even if you're here and you're not sure whether you have that sort of relationship with God, not sure if he speaks the truth about you or about himself or about his son, about your need to repent and believe, you're not sure, well know that he speaks patiently still to you. As we're reminded of in 2 Peter 3, Peter says, Don't forget, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord isn't slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. No, he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but to come to repentance. So even if you do not know him yet this morning, or you stopped listening to him long ago, know that he speaks to you still. And he speaks words of very clear purpose that you would listen to his word of grace. And absolutely every word you read in scriptures is written that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name.